this episode of Residents and Fellows Audio Corner. This is Shobhana Rajan, staff anesthesiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, and on behalf of the Education Committee of the SNAC, we extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Anton Cote from Northwestern University. Dr. Cote is professor of anesthesiology and neurological surgery and neurology, chief of neurosurgical anesthesia, and director of the Neurosurgical Anesthesia Fellowship Program at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Kurt's involvement in neurosurgical anesthesia and evoked potential monitoring started in 1980, and in 1982, he was already heading the department. Subsequently, in 1987, he did a one-year sabbatical research in evoked potential monitoring in Germany. He has since become a giant in this field. He has authored multiple publications, including co-editing a book on neurophysiological monitoring published in English and Chinese. Currently, he is on the editorial board of several journals and frequent reviewer for many others. Dr. Kurt is a frequent speaker nationally and internationally, and organizes many workshops on evoked potential monitoring. Dr. Kurt received the prestigious Teacher of the Year award from the Snack Society in 2013. Thus, it is a privilege for us to have a pioneer in neuromonitoring, enlightening us on the topic anesthesia for neuromonitoring cases. Since the topic is rather broad, and since we would not like to miss out on any salient information, we are going to do part one of the podcast today, which will be anesthesia for neuromonitoring for spine surgery, and do the intracranial part in the next podcast. Welcome, Doctor Cole. We are extremely fortunate to have you with us today. Thank you, Shubhana, for inviting me. It's an honor to participate in this podcast. And before starting, just for correction, I was a chief of section, not the pro, the uh, chairman. Sure. Sorry about that. Thank you so much. Our first question to you is: What type of spine surgery cases require neuromonitoring, and why? Well, spine surgery may benefit from different monitoring modalities. Spine surgery procedure are not all the same. For instance, corrective surgical procedures such as those for scoliosis, kyphosis, and the resection of intramedullary tumors or AVM malformations are at higher risk and may benefit from multimodality neurophysiological monitoring, including SEP, MEP, D-wave, and I-wave. In cases of intramedullary tumors, monitoring may help to map the surface of the spine, spinal cord to identify the safe surgical entry zone. In addition, monitoring will help identify changes due to ischemia caused by surgical maneuvers or drop in blood pressure. For example, minimally invasive spine surgery puts peripheral nerves at risk and may benefit better from monitoring both free-running and triggered EMG. While, for example, placing a pedicle screws is better monitored by triggered EMG, as you can see, different stages of the surgery or operation may benefit from different monitoring. Sure. Thank you for that. Our next question to you is: 
what are the different types of neuromonitoring modalities? Do we use all of them for every case, or do we selectively use them depending on the situation? Yes, several modalities are used during monitoring of spinal surgery. The most common being motor evoke potentials, MEP, sensory evoke potential, SEP, and both free-running and triggered electromyography, EMG, and to a lesser degree, monitoring the D-wave and the I-wave. You may ask what, how we get them. The D-wave and I-wave are recorded from leads placed directly into the epidural space. They are mainly used during the section of intramedullary spinal cord tumors. EMG monitors the health of the peripheral nerves, especially during minimally invasive spine or pelvic, pelvic surgery. So multimodality monitoring is better than one single monitor. However, certain monitors may be more valuable at certain stages of surgery. Sure. So what are the differences between MAP, that is motor evoked potentials, and EMG? Both of them seem to indicate that you're monitoring muscle activity. Is there an advantage of one over the other? Yes, you are correct. We monitor both EMG and MEP, and both are recorded from the muscles. They record what mm. we call CMAP. However, the normal EMG is silent, flat line. The abnormal activity is related to mechanical and or thermal rotation to the peripheral nerve, not to ischemia of the nerve. It can look normal with a completely cut nerve, so we should be mm. careful on that. On the other hand, motor potential does monitor the ischemia rather than the rotation and mechanical stimulation. The two monitors, the MEP and EMG, complement each other by monitoring two different areas, the spinal cord and the nerves, nerve root, respectively. In addition, there are different effects on this monitor from anesthesia. Both are affected and can be completely lost with the use of muscle relaxants but only the MEP is affected by inhalation agents and to a lesser degree by other anesthetics. Thank you for your explanation. That was really interesting. So you did talk about uh, the anesthesia affecting these signals. So how does anesthesia affect the quality of these signals? How do we plan anesthesia for these patients? Yeah, anesthetics affect neuromonitoring modalities differently. For example, muscle relaxants can eliminate both MEP and EMG, but it enhances signal acquisition of SEP. Inhalation agents degrade cortical SEP in dose-dependent fashion, but they do not affect subcortical responses like Orbis point. SEP signals can be obtained up to one MAC or a little bit more, while MEP can be affected by even less than half MAC. Intravenous agents affect MEP and SEP differently. 
some agents, such as propofol, can degrade the signals at high levels, while ketamine mm-hmm. and etamidate may actually enhance the signals at these levels. While narcotics do not have significant direct effects on any monitoring modality, but are better to be used as a infusion rather than boluses. And another thing is lastly to talk about is D-Wave. D-Wave is not affected by any anesthetic we use, while Mm -hmm. I-Wave is easily lost with anesthesia. Both effects are at cortical and head level, cranial level. Both D-Wave and I-Wave are needed for summation at the spinal cord, lamina 5, to generate enough threshold at the alpha motor neuron to generate and create the CMAP and the MEP. Multiple stimulation can partially affect and offset the effects of the anesthesia on the eye wave. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So uh, with respect to intubation, what would be the ideal muscle relaxant to be used for intubation? Well, the ideal muscle relaxant for intubation should depend on take three consideration. Do we need to do pre and post position testing? How mm-hmm. long is the surgical procedure? Does the surgeon need some relaxation for exposure? If pre-positioning evert potentials are needed, then succinylcholine, short-acting, or high-dose remifentanil should be used to to facilitate intubation. However, in these cases, very close attention should be paid to the depth of anesthesia since the patient may start moving during positioning. If there is no need for pre-position testing and the case is long and the surgeon may require some relaxation at the start, then the use of short or intermediate acting muscle relaxant is acceptable. Lacronium is a good choice in these Mm -hmm. cases because it provides the uh, rapid intubation, it will Mm -hmm. prevent the movement during positioning, and provide relaxation for the surgeon while still allowing time to establish the motor potential baseline. If fracuronium is used, we should keep in mind that the MEP, MEP amplitude may be diminished at the first, but gradually it will increase in size. That was really good to know. So uh, we just discussed not using any muscle relaxants for the procedure. Then how, how would we make sure that the patient remains immobile? This is a very important point. Under anesthesia, without muscle relaxation, the patient's movement is usually a reflex rather than the patient is light anesthesia, as the surgeon said sometimes. The reflex is related to the strings of the stimulation, which differs at different stages of surgery. This reflex can be blocked or minimized at one of three locations, the afferent arm of the reflex, the spinal cord, or the efferent 
arm of the reflex. Now let's take them one by one. The reflex can be blocked on the efferent arm by using muscle relaxant, but this will obviously affect motor evoke tension. Let's go to the spinal level. We can block the reflex at spinal level. However, we have to increase the doses of inhalation or propofol. Inhalation has to be increased by three times sedation and propofol four times sedation. Both of these will affect motor evoke potentials. So the best place to minimize the reflex is at the afferent arm by using opioids. High doses of opioids will not significantly affect the motor evoke potential or SCP. However, narcotic alone do not reliably provide amnesia and do not completely block the reflex. So what can we do? Well, since opioids have a synergistic effects with both inhalation agents and propofol, they can be used to block the reflex without the need to use high doses of either propofol or inhalation agent. If we use 0.2 microgram per kilogram per minute of remifentanil and half mac of inhalation agents, this combination provides 95% level of confidence of no movement. Now, if we use the additive effect of propofol and to the inhalation agents, so we have synergy between narcotic and propofol, synergy between narcotic and inhalation, but between inhalation and propofol, it's additive. If we use the additive effect of the two, the use of the high-dose opioids with only 0.3.5 mac of inhalation agents and 25 to 50 microgram per kilogram per minute of propofol is enough to block the reflex and prevent the patient's movement. That was an excellent explanation. Thank you. Our next question is, uh, considering that we use opioid infusions most of the time, how can we avoid awareness and make sure that the patient has amnesia? That's an excellent question too. And again, this is related to the one before, the answer before. The, if we understand the synergistic effects of opioids with inhalation agents and the propofol, as well as the additive effects of inhalation agents to propofol, it makes possible to prevent recall and assure anesthesia and nerve movements. Monitoring the depth of anesthesia with this or similar devices may give us some additional assurance. I see. Thank you. So uh, I think that medico-legal implications of positioning is a significant issue in the prone position, particularly in obese patients. Can neuromonitoring prevent position-related injuries? Yes, proper positioning is very important and is often overlooked in these complex cases. Pre-position neuromonitoring may help assure a safe position. In this situation, it's important to use either succinylcholine or high-dose remifentanil to facilitate intubation. If we use longer-acting muscle relaxant, such as lacuronium, then there will be likely need to pharmacologically 
reverse this medication. The reversal should take into consideration if the, patient, if the, the surgical need for relaxation at later time. Other things about positioning is the upper extremity are often accidentally pushed by the surgeon or the assistant and may lead to peripheral nerve apexia or injury. And monitoring the upper extremity with a neuromotorigan, either, even for lumbar surgery, may help prevent such injury. And yeah. there is a third Path uh, positioning problem. Changes which can occur during complex multi level spinal surgery, and that is related to the body, whole body sagging when they open the back and all the muscles weakened. At that time, the shoulders and the clavicle can be changed position and trap the nerves in that area and create a change in evoke potential. Monitoring will help to prevent that possible injury over there. In some recently, they are using special beds. This bed will generate kyphosis to facilitate surgical exposure. And this may create position stress on the spinal cord. And if not monitored at the start, we may have post-up deficit. And lastly, you have a visual loss sometimes occur, uh, which is very significant and of significant concern with the long prone surgery that is associated with significant anemia, hypotension, and uh, fluids uh, transfusion. Visual evoke potential could theoretically minimize the, this risk. However, practically it's difficult at this time to obtain because of the effects of anesthesia. Mm -hmm. That would be a great idea to do that to prevent visual loss. So one of our CA3 residents at the Cleveland Clinic, and her name is Kristen Holler, she would like to know from you what algorithm should we should follow if the neuromonitoring technologist reports loss of signals. Thank you, Kristen, for this very important and very practical question. First, we should know that there are five causes of neurophysiological losses or deteriorations. These are technical, positional, physiological, pharmacological, and surgical. Each of these changes have certain characteristics which, will, uh, which we should examine and follow in an algorithmic approach. First, we should know, is this an acute and reproducible change? If the, if the answer is yes, then the technologist should notify the anesthesia and the surgical team to assist in identifying and managing the problem. Were there any recent surgical maneuvers that could explain the loss? If yes, then we should consider a surgical cause. These changes, the surgical changes, are usually localized and follow an anatomical pattern consistent with the surgical maneuver. In these cases, the surgeon should attempt to reverse the process if possible. In meantime, the anesthesiologist should help by supporting or augmenting the systemic blood pressure to optimize circulation 
and oxygenation while the surgeon remedied the situation. If there were no recent surgical maneuvers, then we should think about the territory of the signal loss. Namely, is it global or is it focal? If it's a global, then we should think about physiological and pharmacological causes. SEP changes due to anesthetic agent tend to be of cortical and general in all areas, but not subcortical responses, while muscle motor potential changes tend to be generalized everywhere. Both changes should be and will occur as a follow to some recent alteration in anesthetic delivery. So we should check mm. on the delivery of the anesthesia. Physiological changes tend to be global as well and are associated with some changes in physiological parameters, such as hypotension, generalized hypothermia. However, there are localized hypothermia, arm is out and cold, or giving IV fluids cold, or there is hypoperfusion, such as a tourniquet being on and we forget it, it may create localized changes. So we should be careful on that. If the changes is a focal, then we should seek a technical or positional etiology, such as changes in arm position or increase in impedance. So as you could see, Kristen, from this here, we should follow algorithm to get to the proper diagnosis and proper treatment. Thank you so much, Dr. Kurt. In fact, I did have one such case where there was loss of signal and it was uh, focal and the surgeons wanted us to use high-dose steroids. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. At this time, there is no strong and uh, evident base to support that high-dose steroid is going to help in uh, this kind of situation. There is one or two case report which they have steroid and hypothermia, and they have some improvement, but the improvement may have had at that time been due to the short period between the injury and the recovery. So what should we do if the neuromonitoring technologist tells us that the signals are poor even at the beginning of the case? You did mention that ketamine and etomidate enhance. How do we handle the anesthesia in this situation? Yeah, absolutely. Certain patients are expected to be more challenging in obtaining adequate baseline signals. For example, the very young patients they have an immature nervous system, while the elderly patients may have age-related demyelination or pre-existing neurological deficit, diabetes, or other comorbidity, which tend to make baseline signals less robust and more sensitive to the anesthetic agents. This group of patients may benefit from elimination of inhalation agents and they probably benefit from using only TIVA. However, we should not be uh, high on the propofol because it can do the same damage. We should be higher on the uh, narcotic and use the synergy between them. In such uh -huh. patients, we may benefit from certain pharmacological 
adjunct such as ketamine or uh, which can enhance the signal or etamidate which can enhance the signal or lidocaine which can provide analgesia and decrease the need for other agents. Sure. So what are the disadvantages of neuromonitoring? What precautions should we take to prevent these complications? Okay. Uh, there are some precautions that we need to be aware of and take care of during neurophysiological monitoring. And they are easily to be managed. For example, due to the motor potential, we may have a tongue or lips injury from the strabis muscles of the face during the stimulation. So we need to put a bite blockers placed correctly to protect these injuries. We should put the bite blocker between the molars, make sure the tongue is not trapped in between. Uh, some people ask, oh, maybe we should have two bite pluggers. At present, there is no data to support that. One mm -hmm. on the other side of the tube is enough. For example, personally, I use four of the four by four, roll them around, put tape around them, and put them in that area. The only time we use two, if the patient had a nasal intubation or tracheostomy, and we are ventilating from the tracheostomy side. And there could be some bleeding, sometimes significant, from the needles, especially in the scalp, uh, especially if the patient is anticoagulant or those who receive heparin during surgery. Care should be taken to stop such a bleeding by holding adequate pressure over the site. Sure. We now get to our last question for today. If a patient is on chronic opioids, how would we deal with the situation? Yeah, patients who are obvious, chronically use the opioids are, and you know, provide us with a lot of a challenge and how we mm. do this. We probably will need to give higher doses of opioids and in order to ensure adequate analgesia. Uh, we may give uh, methadone in this situation to help these cases. However, we have to be careful post-operatively. Uh, the dose of methadone will decrease what we need from the normal narcotic. We could supplement the narcotic with ketamine. Uh, ketamine works differently on different receptors, the NMGA receptors. So this is combination of the mu receptor and NMGA receptors to hold together. We could use lidocaine infusion uh, to help, to, which will decrease the amount of opioid and hypnotic needed, plus giving some analgesia. So there are a few things which can be done to overcome this narcotic situations. Sure. Thank you so much for such an excellent review on this topic, and we hope to talk to you soon for the second part of the podcast. It's my pleasure, Shwana. Thank you very much for inviting me again, and it's an honor to be part of this podcast. Thank you.